I need to turn off my EC. Do I, do I just leave it on? No, please turn it off. Please turn off your, your uh, fan please. and your, your buzz. And watch, watch the language and... Ah, he lives on a bed made of stone. Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 74. Today, we are talking about spiritual cinema, which we're anchoring on uh, Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. We're defining uh, spiritual cinema however you would want to define it. We're not saying just movies that affirmatively uh, make a case for the existence of God or a transcendent plane of reality, but also movies that affirmatively say there is none and that it, it, that there is no God, an atheist point of view, or question an agnostic point of view or come at spiritual cinema through spirituality as sci-fi, which I see a lot, which is that the closest we'll get to transcendence is when we make contact with another civilization or intelligence. You can define it however you want. I'm sure our team will define it however they want. Who's with us today? Hey, it's it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Connor Lee Curry's the People's Champion. Hello, America. I just woke up from a deep nap and and now I'm here from cryogenic sleep. Uh, no, I just, I just, uh, I just woke up because I forgot there was a podcast we were doing, and uh, yeah, super passionate and committed to the Secret Movie Club team. Edwin Gomez in the house. We're actually coming at you today live from the M M&M and M store in Times Square, New York. I'm on the, I'm on the Ferris wheel. <laughs> um, and my name's Craig. I'm the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. Announcements for this week. You heard our, maybe you heard our Dark Spielberg podcast last week. Tonight, we're going to be doing Munich, one of my favorite latter period Spielberg movies on 35 millimeter at the Secret Movie Club Theater. Tomorrow, Saturday, we're going to be doing a double dose of Alfred Hitchcock, two of his absolute best, which I, I never can get enough of. I was slow on Vertigo, I have to say. I, I used to find Vertigo boring when I was a kid. And now the older I get, I finally caught up to everything. But I'm like, this movie, it's fascinating. Uh, we're doing Rear Window and Vertigo on 35. The following Wednesday, we are going to be doing Fastbender's first two features, or first two of three. We're doing Love is Colder Than Death and Gods of the Plague on 35 millimeters. So if you've been doing our Fastbender series, you actually can see his first two feature films. And then we close out September with, I always love to tell this story. Keith Richards said that one of the secrets to how he wrote so many great songs when he was really, you know, in it was is that he learned that if you're doing chord changes, the chord that precedes the last chord should have t- like uh, notes of the chord you're about to go to. And it creates, so instead of just doing G, D, E or whatever, or however your chord structure is, if you're going to go to G from the D, uh, or rather from the D to the G, you should actually weave into the G some D and it creates this cool thing. So leading into October, we are doing David this Fincher's- There's a really long winded way to get to saying that Zodiac is a transitional film. Unfortunately, <laughs> I got the Irish disease. I'm sorry. We're doing David Fincher's- Zodiac Thursday September 30th and then October 1st get ready we are doing Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear on 35 millimeter as always you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com podcast at secretmovieclub.com just go to secretmovieclub.com to see everything and I will say one more time by the time you hear this we should have announced our entire October but our Halloween-a-thon we went big some more titles I'd like to share with you is uh, we are going to be doing Phantasm and Night of the Living Dead on 35 millimeter uh, we are going to be doing Diabolique 
on 35 millimeter. We are going to be doing Evil Dead 2 on uh, 35 millimeter. We are going to be doing a double bill of William Castle, uh, The Tingler and House on Haunted Hill on 35 millimeter with the William Castle gimmicks. Uh, If you don't remember how William Castle would do gimmicks, we're going to have the gimmicks. We are going to be doing American film genre archive horror trailers on 35 millimeter. We're doing John Carpenter's The Fog, among many others. Oh, and 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 there is a Fassbender horror in there, too. We're showing Satan's Brew. All right. So there you go. Check out. Get tickets. We'd love to have you. More to come on that. Today, we are talking about spiritual cinema, and we're anchoring it on Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. As we said at the head, we are defining spiritual cinema really the way it should be, because there's so many ways of coming at it. Everything from you may be religious, by which I mean you do actively associate yourself with a world religion. You may be spiritual. You may believe in God, but sort of reject man-made religion. You may be agnostic. You may say, you know, I just don't know. How could a person ever know? Which I actually think is actually the only logically defensible position is agnosticism. Anyone who's an atheist or anyone who's a believer is taking a leap of faith, in my opinion. And then you could be an atheist and you could say, I reject all of it. There is no God. There is no transcendent plane. And there are points of view that I might not have even voiced because I have such a limited point of view. I am obsessed with spiritual cinema. Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ is one of my favorite Scorsese films. And for my money, the best movie about Christ ever made, The Life of Christ. I watched my Criterion DVD that I must have bought like a decade ago when I was still doing the Edwin thing where I would just buy a bunch of movies I've never seen. Finally paid off. I thought it was great. I agree out of the depictions of the Jesus story that I've seen of the the gospel, whether literal or not. This feels like it's got to be the best. I think so much of like spiritual Christian media sometimes comes too much from the point of view of assuming that you're Christian. And I don't think this does for the most part. I would also argue assuming that it's right to group together political viewpoints with spiritual viewpoints. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I think that's why a lot of sometimes like, you know, Christian uh, media, like fully Christian media can be kind of lame. I speak this as somebody from Texas. So (laughs) I was surrounded by this stuff because so much of it just... I think the best art is sort of questioning our reality and so much of like pure Christian media just doesn't question it because it's, well, they know the answer. It's God. (laughs) I think largely Last Temptation does a great job. I think there's a couple of scenes, weirdly, I think a couple of times Scorsese, I think specifically in that scene when Jesus shows up to the town and he's just like, everybody, you got to believe in me. And they're like, no. (laughs) And then he gets like real (laughs) upset about it. And I was like, well, should you know, there's maybe ways to show them being a little more resistant because it kind of just seemed like he was just yelling at them <laughs> and getting mad. That- Is that the scene where they stone him and the apostles have to cart him away? I think so, yeah. Because he just starts like yelling at them and being like, he mentioned something about, well, shouldn't you guys have seen me? And maybe if they had emphasized, there's like more of an emphasis on that, that they're like explicitly trying to deny him. But it more, it more felt like if you were just hanging out with your friends and then somebody shows up yelling that they're the son of God and you're just like, <laughs> prove it. And the guy's just like, no, <laughs> it gets upset. And so there's, there's a couple little moments throughout it that I, I wonder if play a little differently because as a, as a someone who doesn't believe, but 
as like a narrative, as, as a story, it's, I mean, it's a great story in the Bible and it's a great adaptation of it. I almost sometimes wonder if, you know, the Bible has been translated so many times. And in some ways, something like this movie to me as an atheist this is almost like close to this is like a new translation of that story because I think it clearly keeps the heart of the story and what makes it important as a story, maybe not as a religion. So just a little context about Last Temptation of Christ. Scorsese made it in 1988, and it's actually based on a Greek author's book, Nikos Kasantzakis, who reinterpreted the Gospels. The Last Temptation of Christ is actually a novel that posits a few things that are definitely not part of Orthodox Christianity. One of them being that Judas is actually a hero, because if you believe that Christ had to die on the cross, which he seems in the Gospels to know he has to do, somebody would have had to have turned him in, and that Judas had to do him in to then blame Judas or then, you know, say that Judas was a bad guy would be a misread of how Jesus had to die. In fact, the movie and the novel posits that Jesus would have had to take Judas into his confidence and say, you're going to have to martyr yourself as well. And your job is even harder because you'll be hated for history. But you have to do this because I have to be crucified. There's an exchange where Jesus is asking Judas to basically betray him. And Judas says, would you be able to do it? If would you be able to turn in your, your master, your rabbi? And Jesus says, no, that's why God gave me the easier job to be crucified. Carvey Keitel plays Judas, uh, and I think he might be the best part of the movie, like the stuff they do with that character. He's incredible. And then the other the other thing, and, and I guess if you don't want to hear this audience, don't listen to this part because it, it will. We, we're we're going to have to get into it. And it is in the title, I would also say. But the movie was also considered really blasphemous. Because it tells the story of Jesus being tempted by the devil in the desert, which we all know from the Gospels. But then it posits that his final temptation on the cross was to be human. And the devil tempts him to leave the cross and live a human life, which includes getting married, having children, having sex, getting older, all the things all of us take for granted. And he can enjoy all of it. We know this Jesus has a big because it's Willem Dafoe. (laughs) And so when that happens, that really, for a lot of people who are very orthodox, that was very offensive to them, even though the movie ultimately affirms the spirituality of Christ, affirms the divinity of Christ. The movie basically, and I think the Gospels back this up, it shows Jesus dealing with his spiritual side and with his human side. And the Gospels showed that too. And it shows Jesus being conflicted, and it shows Jesus being scared, and it shows Jesus being freaked out that he feels that he he's the son of God. And so the movie is a very vital, vital thing. But a lot of people uh, were not down with it. Watching it now. Yeah. When it came out. Yeah. There was lots of protests. I think a lot of conservative media people made a lot of hay out of it, including certain people like Pat Robertson, who's still around watching it now. To me, it almost seems silly. And maybe this is somebody who comes from, you know, outside of that point of view. It's just so funny that this movie in which, like, Jesus is literally being called, like, a blasphemer for all this stuff that people would then protest it. It, it, it always just seems so silly. It's, it's like people are like, well, when this happened, it was good, but now that it's happening again, it's bad. In terms of the idea of, like, reinterpretation of story. And all, the movie literally starts with a disclaimer. Scorsese is such a devout Catholic as a little disclaimer this is a work of fiction like at the beginning i just think if if god is real i think he has 
bigger fish to fry. Yeah, agreed. Than a movie that essentially affirms God's existence. I think God's going to let that one go. <laughs> I do have to go on the record that I, I have never understood. I have met many atheists who are better, quote unquote, Christians than Christians. Half my family is atheist and devoted their lives to the homeless, devoted their lives to underserved children, devoted their lives to leading by Jesus's example. And they were avowed atheists. And I think that God, what, however you want to define God, I think the fish he's frying include people who commit horrible acts of intolerance and abuse in God's name than atheists who are living good lives. So it's a whole bigger conversation. Uh, Edwin, what do you think about Last Temptation of Christ? It's a, it's a pretty good picture. You know, that Jesus guy, man. What a, what a, what a, what a guy. What a guy. What a, uh, what a dude. What a great dude, you know? I like the movie. I prefer this over Gibson's... Um, Passion of the Christ. I, I truly love Last Temptation of Christ. I think that's one of the... Scorsese's best film in, in his entire career of his spirituality uh, trilogy. The two being Kundun and uh, Silence, which is probably his best. I'm not a big religious dude. I don't have much need for it. But for a movie like that, I really like what it is and what it stands for. I think Defoe gives a, a terrific performance. Harvey Keitel, dude, deserves an Oscar nomination for his performance. And fun fact, he yelled at Jesus and Bad Lieutenant saying, Where the f*** were you? Where were you? Which I love that scene so much because he's yelling at God and that's something I would like to do sometimes. <laughs> I don't know why. Just to do the Harvey Keitel thing, that'll be that'll be great. Your neighbors are concerned about you. I, I can see why this movie got a lot of heat because um there there is a scene where um Jesus is have have a lot of love interest with a Barbara Hershey character, Mary Magdalene, and, a, and the biblical people didn't like that because um shows them having sex. I read this on a comment on Letterboxd, but I feel like the thing in the movie that's maybe the most blasphemous is there's a final sequence again where Jesus gets to live his life as a man. And at one point, Harry Dean Stanton is playing St. Paul, who was Saul, Saul, who's now Paul. And he's preaching about Jesus as if the crucifixion and the resurrection happened. And Jesus tries to confront him and be like, that didn't happen to me. And Harry Dean Stanton just tells him, like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care that you're you're not my Jesus then. It doesn't matter that you did or didn't. What people need is this belief. And that's what's important about it. That almost feels like the most blasphemous thing because it's like an actual saint character just saying to Jesus, like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care actually about you. And actually, Connor, to your point, uh, many people who are biblical scholars or historical scholars of the time basically posit that's what happened because Paul is the one who created really the church and Christianity. And many posit that whoever the historical Jesus was, that historical Jesus is vastly different from the Jesus of the early church and the Jesus of Paul used to create this Gentile religion that fully broke with Judaism. So, I mean, that scene is probably acutely painful for people who don't want to deal with the Paul question. The other, I think, favorite sequence in this is that desert visions sequence. Jesus goes into the desert. The actual temptations. Yeah, it's his first temptation of Christ. And the devil appears to him in many different forms, tempting him in different ways. And it's really good. I remember somebody describing this as a horror movie at one point. And I don't know if I would totally agree with that, but there's definitely scenes that play with that. And I think that's that's one of them. And yeah, lastly, I think it's interesting the themes in the movie about 
like old law versus new law and tradition and that also feels like a more legitimately place for controversy because thematically it's a little more uh i don't know if revolutionary is the right word it's reverent to certain things but it's very not reverent to others there are only a handful of movies for me that feel that they've really achieved some kind of acknowledgement or some kind of real exploration of the transcendent or rejection of the transcendent. And I can only rattle them off, and I'm sorry, but I, I would encourage everybody to see these movies. The Passion of Joan of Arc, Carl Theodore Dreyer, and it, he did both of these, a movie called Or Debt, The Last Temptation of Christ, which I'll talk about in a minute, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, which we talked about a moment ago, but I think posits that God could be an alien civilization so advanced from us that we wouldn't understand it. But if we made contact with it, we would essentially experience something bordering on attaining a level of consciousness we, we hadn't gotten before. I'm a big fan, actually, of the Coen brothers, uh, No Country for Old Men, as well as A Serious Man, with which both come to universal forces as being unknowable in a way and being as violent as they would be, being as constructive as destructive. Also, I love Lars von Trier's uh, Melancholia, which I think is one of the greatest atheist movies ever made, which basically shows religion or spirituality. And I think many people feel that spirituality is something that maybe people need and they don't regret it for people but they don't feel the need for it. And I think Lars von Trier's Melancholia posits that weirdly the people who don't feel the need for it will be best positioned when an ant, like an asteroid takes us out or the world ends because they're not going to have any major struggles about why did God do this to us or why is this happening or why is the universe and forces in the universe we always knew were there. Why are we suddenly now on the bad end of them or, or what have you? Tarkovsky, Solaris and Stalker, I think are two great sci-fi spiritual movies. Last Temptation for me is also one of the few movies that attain this because it so honestly looks at it. I highly recommend that people read Scorsese's Scorsese on Scorsese and another great book called Scorsese, A Journey, written by Mary Pat Kelly, uh, which has all these great interviews. But Scorsese said that if you believe in Jesus as divine and you read the Gospels, there's no way that Jesus could have been this glowing God figure because so many people rejected Jesus. And if Jesus was clearly the son of God and everybody saw it, then Jesus would be walking into rooms glowing with like a halo and no one would have like would have rejected Jesus. Nobody would have crucified Jesus. People would have been like, whoa, this Jesus guy has got magic powers. But instead, if you read the Gospels, Jesus changes his mind. He changes his message. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he literally says, please get me out of this. I mean, the apostles hear him praying to God, I don't want to die like this. And then on the cross, he famously says, oh, Lord, why hast thou forsaken me as he's dying? And many people have tried to explain this or rationalize this. And Scorsese adopts it head on. He's like, Jesus was conflicted. <laughs> Jesus was probably wholly human and wholly divine and couldn't deal with this heavy thing. And I think that Last Temptation, it, to me, is the most powerfully moving. I really dislike Passion of the Christ, and I just don't like that film at all because it just feels sadomasochistic and it's like Jesus getting the hell beaten out of him and then it's like pointing the finger at everybody and saying and you did this and the Jews did this and this that and the other thing when Jesus was a rabbi Jesus was a Jew and I would point out Jesus did not feel he was creating a new religion Jesus was a Jewish revolutionary who wanted the Romans out 
and just was trying to introduce a new kind of Judaism that was all inclusive. This is what Jesus was doing at the time and then ended up being crucified basically for his rebel and revolutionary political actions, among many other things, and yet influenced all these people with this story of, you know what, the prostitutes, the poor, the lame, the lepers, they are the ones who are part of the kingdom of God. And I think this was a shocking message to people who had been donating millions of dollars to the temple. And Jesus was saying, hey, it's not by donations that you're getting to God. And this leper and this prostitute that you've rejected may be closer to God than you are. No one likes to hear that story that you can't buy your way into heaven, that you got to live the life, that you got to live the spiritual life. I could go on and on and on, but this movie is hugely influential. To, and I think I've been on the record. I am a practicing Christian. I'm a practicing Catholic, but I'm also a Jew. My dad's family is Jewish. I also believe that Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, I think it's all the same thing. I think that God, the God of one must be the God of all. And I believe that everybody is entitled to find God in their way. And I have as much respect for atheists and agnostics. And I often find they see truth in a way that believers are never willing to confront truth. I have had some of my most profound conversations with atheists and agnostics. I myself was an atheist. I had an experience where I was an atheist and I came back to a very profound spiritual belief. But I, I just have to say that was my journey. Everybody has their own journey. I don't think the passion of the Christ adopts any of that questioning or any of that openness. I think the last temptation of Christ, however, does. So uh, good picture. Passion of the Christ. Uh, just a reference. It's not a good movie. It's basically torture porn. Mel Gibson. What a what a hey, it's well made. From a filmmaking no, no, point of view, it's not. Say. It's no, not it. Well, that demon uh, is kind of cool no, that he sees. No, Eli Roth's no, no, Passion no, no, of the no. Christ. That I would see. <laughs> that I would see. But Mel Gibson directing style for that movie, it's 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 pretty bad. It's awful. I remember not seeing it when my family saw it and seeing Scooby Doo Two: Monsters Unleashed instead. <laughs> written by James Gunn. Uh, I went and saw it with a friend of mine at the Cinerama Dome oh, God. Uh, the first weekend. And we're sitting in the audience with a bunch of people who I could tell were really being moved by that movie. And, and I want to be clear, if you're moved by the passion, I, I, I'm not trying to say you're wrong for that. I mean, any more than I, I would want you to tell me I'm wrong for being moved by Last Temptation. To each their own, truly. And I understand that movie was earnestly, devoutly made. But my friend and I are watching it. Nothing about the Gospels. Nothing about Jesus's teachings, nothing about turn the other cheek, nothing about, you know, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That's literally what Jesus says. Love God and love your neighbor. The rest doesn't matter. That's literally what he says in the gospel. I just want to point out to people and I can even quote scripture for people who want me to quote scripture. That's Matthew 23 or 22 verses 37 through 40. One of my favorite biblical quotes, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor the same way. That's it. He says the rest doesn't matter. That being said, I'm watching it and all I'm seeing is Jesus getting the hell punched out of him in Passion of the Christ and Jews kind of being blamed for it. And in the middle of the movie, my buddy looks at me and the audience was silent and he goes, Jesus Christ. And then I started to laugh and I was like, ha, 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 ha. and he started to laugh and we had about... 50 people turn and mad dog us and he and I just laughed we're like sorry buddies this is ridiculous and we stayed but uh we were not we were persona we were persona non grata for the rest of that movie 
Daniel, what's some of your favorite spiritual cinema? I also I was brought up in a, a Christian household, the Church of Christ, uh, non-denominational. So relationship with a spiritual cinema is really interesting because there's sort of the spiritual cinema that is created by sort of religious production houses that has kind of a, a general intent message that appeals to a specific audience. And then there's this, in my opinion, more interesting spiritual cinemas like The Last Temptation seems to be, I haven't seen it, I'll, I'll correct, but stuff that sort of speaks to the general things of what religion and faith and the general concept of spiritual means to people individually versus these overall religions. I think just the general idea of like what faith means to people on an independent level and so you get stuff like Edmund mentioned Silence, which I think is one of Scorsese's best movies, I thought was astounding and very difficult to watch. But I think there's also things like Malick's The Tree of Life is something that is inherently spiritual, even if it's not always speaking directly about, but it is about like family and faith and sort of these moments when the universe is created uh, in the beginning. There's sort of it is this spiritual journey of even if it's just this visceral thing. And I also wrote down, just to blow through some the same way, which I think I'm going to say it right. Is it pronounced Black Narcissus or is it Narcissus? Isn't it Blake? From 1947 is sort of a stunning thing. It's about a coven of nuns who are building a school and a hospital in sort of this isolated mountain area. I think it's in the Himalayas. But it's also about like this tension that amounts from like these rules that prevent them from having physical intimacy and how that sort of falls into like well, there's this biology that's sort of pushing toward what the you know, human desire and is that right or wrong and how do you fight? My personal favorite from the last few years, well, kind of two, I thought last year's Minari, which was never really directly about religion, but was also kind of about it in terms of southern United States, but also in this interesting positive light. So not super overtly Christian or religious, but about like these things at play and the way people behave when you're interacting with people from different religions and sort of like what that implies, like the goodness in people, the goodness that people look for in religion, they sort of find in some of the people that they live with in town. And then I can't pronounce this director's name. It's like Powell Halikowski. It's the guy he did Cold War a few years ago, but he did a, a film called Ida in 2013, which is about a woman who goes to a coven in the Polish countryside, I think. And she takes her, her vows and sort of learns all these old family secrets that she's actually has Jewish ancestry that grows back to the German occupation of Poland. And it really kind of focuses on learning about your life, about a people who have been oppressed for their religion while joining a different religion that also has these very specific rules that she sort of views as oppressive and sort of coming to terms with how she will kind of navigate things like that. And I think it's really powerful because those are more directly religious, but also just more about like how we as humans have to figure out this balance of our personal faith and also these quote-unquote rules that some religions sort of dictate are the necessity that define that faith. And so some people, you have this kind of push and pull between what you believe morally and personally with your faith versus sort of what is required of you within different religions. And I think the struggle of that is sort of infinite. If you're someone who is religious or someone who struggles with faith, or someone who doesn't believe in anything. There's, there's all these really interesting things of what push and pulls us to believe in that one way and how we figure out what works for us that I think is fascinating. And that it's, I think, really hard to capture on film. So when it is done right, I think it's very powerful and very moving. I think it's actually incredibly hard to make these kinds of movies in a way that whatever your viewpoint is, you'd be open to it and it would play as a movie. It's the same way why I think political movies are tough because if people start to feel you're lecturing 
or you feel like you know the answer to something that no one really knows the answer to in a way, then it's going to be a turnoff because you, you're going to feel it's propaganda or someone proselytizing to you. But when when a movie is made and you experience something transcendent, and maybe as Connor said, because it's more questioning or exploring or giving you the space to either reject or accept or think about it, and yet it does achieve something. I think that's incredibly hard cinema to do. It's it's an ideal of mind, actually, and I don't. I just don't know how you do it. As a brief aside, the one person I forgot to mention is, is sort of there's there's films that are like like Fireproof or God's Not Dead that are for a very specific audience and are, are very um, uninviting to people outside of that realm. They feel preachy. Or Assassin Thirty Three A.D., which I watched last year which is about a bunch of time-traveling Muslims who attempt to swat Jesus. <laughs> or, yeah, that. Whoa. But you also get... There's, there's <laughs> filmmakers... Like, are you familiar with Stephen Cohn? He's a, a Christian filmmaker who has come out as gay in his personal life, I believe. I've only seen two of his films. One's called Henry Gamble's Birthday Party, and the other one's called Princess Sid. They're both kind of coming-of-age stories about young teenagers who are involved in some sort of church aesthetic... And it's not about them falling out with it. It's about them like trying to find their place within this thing that they find faith in. They find that it's important to their life while also retaining their individuality. And they're really fascinating because they're sort of – they are religious films, but they're about this broader idea of how do I keep myself but also sort of be able to interpret this religion the way that I see. And I think that's dope. Also, Richard Linklater's Waking Life, I think, is a, a very spiritual film, and it rules. There's not a lot of, like, explicitly Christian stuff I really like. I mean, there's stuff that deals with Christianity, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, but, eh, you know, it's like using it as a backdrop. And actually, technically, Raiders is Jewish. The Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the Jews. That's shared history. <laughs> That's true. I was thinking about, like, actual Christian stuff that I like. Weirdly, I just kept thinking about Neutral Moco Tell's album, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea which is, you know, influenced by Jeff Mangum's Christianity. I wrote down a couple of movies, and they kind of fall into two categories. One is stuff like Repo Man, funnily enough, and David Lynch's work, which kind of deal with the transcendent on a more abstract level, which I think is how, if I don't know if I even believe in that, but if I did, I think it would be on that level, or even on the idea of that it's almost internal that the transcendent can be reached, but it's a personal thing. There is no sort of transcendence outside of the self. Lynch touches upon, especially in Twin Peaks, the way that, you know, there's this weird cross-section of, is it aliens, is it demons, is it yada, 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 and it's kind of everything. (laughs) It's real, and it's not real, and it's a dream. And, you know, Repo Man, the ending of it, is a little bit like the punk rock 2001. Otto, I think, achieves some form of transcendence through just, like, personal choice in that film and his decision to get in that car. And then the other stuff I wrote down is stuff more like the wicker man (laughs) and (laughs) to a lesser degree, James Gunn's super, which view religion in a, a, a much different way, maybe in a little more negative way, wicker man, especially, which is kind of a movie about religions conflicting. I don't think either religion is made out to be that good looking in wicker man both the orthodox christian and the pagan people they seem equally destructive just seems bad and then super super redeems its character a bit but super uses christianity in in weird weird ways if people don't know super is james gunn's movie he made before guardians which is i think still kind of remarkable considering some of the stuff in super in it the lead character becomes inspired to become a superhero after some trauma in his life and he has 
a quote-unquote vision, maybe a psychotic break, where God appears as a bunch of tentacles and, like, rips his top of his head off, and the finger of God touches his brain, and then he talks to Bible Man, played by Nathan Fillion. And this is the inspiration for him to become a superhero. And I think there's something interesting in that about the way it's it's using the sort of more straightforward morals of Christianity and to reflect in Rain Wilson's character. Because Rain Wilson's a sympathetic character in that movie, but he's also kind of an insane man. I think that's maybe the difference between like organized religion versus spirituality and those two selections of things I said where organized religion I think is personally I think is more destructive where I think more like personal spirituality is positive and those things oftentimes go hand in hand for a lot of people and so it's a hard line to walk as an atheist there's part of me that uh, as a knee-jerk reaction wants to be like screw all this like you know f it all this stuff but it's also I think hard to deny the good it does in the world, but I also think it's hard to deny the bad it also does. And it's a tricky subject. Very. Yeah. It's it's one, it's people thought about it a lot. <laughs> you hear about this one? Uh, Thin Red Line is a pretty good one. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, spiritual cinema. I love that movie very much. It's funny when you watch that movie multiple times, how you realize it's much more about God than it is about war. Very spiritual. It's, there's a lot of shots like looking up in the sky and looking at the trees and looking at all the nature that's around them. All this chaos is happening. I think Thin Line Lion is like the most spiritual, religious film I've ever seen in my life. And it's taking place during World War II. One of the toughest things in life is that once you feel that you've come to an understanding or you know what your belief system is, it's very hard to change again. It's very hard to say, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I have to change yet again. I think when people settle into their politics or settle into their spirituality or non-spirituality or agnostic stance... The notion, especially as you get older, that you have to tear that all up again based on new truths or new facts, that's hard. And yet I think constantly being open to hearing something you don't want to hear and having to bake that into the cake or absorb it or adjust it, I don't see how else you grow. I don't see how you stay a vital filmmaker if you're not willing to earnestly hear opposing viewpoints out and seriously consider them. And it's very uncomfortable to do that. You know, one thing I would say, just a shout out to the Jewish side of my, my heritage is I love like Kubrick's 2001 is a very challenging picture. I know I mentioned this, but I think the Coen brothers, no country for old men and a serious man and no country is really influenced by Cormac McCarthy's Christianity as well. But both of those pictures, no country and a serious man posit that there may be a transcendent force, but that transcendent force is unknowable because from that transcendent force comes both what we perceive as destructive and constructive. And I think the Hindus get at this too, that human beings, the hardest thing for us is we tend to think that if things go well, God is on our side. And when things go poorly, God is against us. And I think the things that people who stay spiritual have to wrestle with, especially as they encounter more and more personal tragedy in their lives, is, well, I've experienced personal tragedy and yet I still have faith. Why do I still have that faith? I heard of all people, Stephen Colbert say something fascinating where someone kind of took him on for his Catholicism. And he said, well, I lost almost my entire family. And what I realized in that moment in an air accident is God is there to be with you when things are hard. 
not to prevent the hard things from happening. And my wife often says, and people who are atheists and agnostics don't like to hear this. And so she doesn't say it, but she said, atheism is a luxury of the first world. She said that you're going to find a lot more atheists in the first world because they didn't have to deal with real, real horror. Uh, My wife lived through the Salvadorian civil war and a number of things. And she said, if you took God away from people dealing with real horror, there was no way that they would be able to get through what they're going through and that God isn't there to prevent horror. God isn't there to make sure your life is a success. Whatever the transcendent forces in the universe are there to help you when things are really, really, really hard. And I, I'm not saying that I fully, but I would say that I've been through nothing compared to other people, but I don't think I'm immune because of my faith to atrocities and the unexplicable. That's not my view of God. And uh, my view of God is, is something very unknowable and profound that I don't understand that I wrestle with every day, but I believe in it. I have a profound faith in it. In the end, I do believe in something transcendent. So I love movies that get at it and question it and uh, struggle with it and wrestle with it. And I will, whatever position they come from, and I'm in. Pop culture and final thoughts. Been going good. Uh, I saw Point Break for the second time in years. Johnny Utah, man, I know, a great character. What a great patriotic uh, American name. Uh, Ex-football dude, joins the FBI. Teaches him how to surf. Patrick Swayze is a righteous dude. Captain Bigelow's directing style is pretty badass. Uh, yeah. I watched another contender, another great good bad movie recently that actually kind of ties in to what we're talking about. The 1975 The Astrologer, written, directed, and starring Craig Denny. My friend Paul, who brought this movie to my attention, he kind of told this stuff to me, so maybe he's lying, or maybe some of this stuff is, you know, apocryphal. But apparently the movie was, the way they shot it is they would do astrology readings every day, and that would decide what they would do for the day, which does lend itself to, it's a very uh, segmented movie. The first half feels like a jungle adventure, and then it kind of becomes like Citizen Kane. (laughs) The funniest thing is that it is kind of unreleasable because he used all these Moody Blues songs in it, and (laughs) he either didn't get permission or he like... I think he tried to pull some stuff with the record company. This is, again, this could be apocryphal, where he changed the contracts (laughs) secretly where they would have to pay him royalties for the songs going forward. Apparently, not long after the movie was released, he was in dire financial straits. I think because of business practices he did in the movie and then apparently passed away, but there's a lot of rumors that he faked his own death to escape his debts. So it's a it has a fascinating backstory and the movie itself is crazy in that great bad movie kind of way where it just does things that you just wouldn't nobody who is like trying to make a movie would do on purpose. But they do them and it's just befuddling and worth checking out. The astrologer. But it is hard to you have to find a copy in like a well somewhere cuz it's i think it's like unreleasable you're getting better at that though you seem to find all these movies that no one else sees that one was brought to my attention via my friend paul there's there's a there's a a series of sequences towards the middle that i can't even begin to describe what happens in them because it's just one befuddling thing after the other 
And you can watch me play video games at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I have just returned from the Big Apple, New York City, baby. And I went to a bunch of different theaters here because there's a lot of great iconic movie theaters to explore. And there's a lot of cool history with them. And also, like, it's some interesting counterpoint history to Los Angeles and sort of the way that Los Angeles, like, you know, with us doing stuff at the Million Dollar Theater and sort of Broadway's like movie palace dynamic versus like these much, a lot of them have been renovated, but smaller theaters that have a really particular focus. And it's, it's a lot of fun to sort of see how these big cultural centers handle their movie theater stuff. And I think here too, rules are a little bit stricter. They have a vax card requirement to see movies, but you really find within that, that the people coming out to see it, I think in a, a way similar to what we found, people are very excited to be back and they're taking things very seriously so that they can continue to be back. So I think it's very important to them. But beyond that, that was sort of my pop culture thing. I've just been living it up in the Big Apple. I want to thank the Secret Movie Club friend Anne Mortensen Agnew. She actually recommended a Estonian sci-fi movie, which I'm checking out and considering programming. And there's nothing more exciting to me than when someone comes and they're like, have you heard of this movie? And I go, no. And then they're like, ah, you should. I don't know. I think it might be good. I haven't seen it either. And then I go see a trailer and I'm like, what is this? I almost feel like it's some tear in the space time continuum where the movie was created that it hasn't always existed, even though it must have because it was made in 1979 or 81, whenever it was made. But I don't want to give away the title, although I don't know how many Estonian sci-fi movies have been made. So you probably with some research could find it. But it's part of this. Soviet cinema sci-fi that we never got to see because we there wasn't a lot of cross-cultural sharing of movies during the Cold War. I mean, the ones we know about are, of course, the Tarkovsky ones, which are brilliant. Solaris, Stalker, and there are a few others. I lived in Prague when I was 19, and we saw some Czech sci-fi movies, which were sort of mind-blowing, too, that we had never heard about. And they are coming at it from, I think, the space race, but where they would go with it. Interestingly, we would go with it, too. There's probably a series to be made of how they would perceive artificial intelligence and what their concerns were and how we perceived artificial intelligence, what our concerns were, what they perceived alien interaction would be, what we perceived alien interaction would be, and then uh, how our different cultures, we probably knew a lot about cultural values based on what our fears or hopes were based on these similarly shared excitements about the space race. So I'm going to watch this movie. I'm really excited about it. The log line on it's dynamite, whether you're Eastern or Western bloc. And uh, I'll get back to you. So I'm checking that out. And if I like it, F it, I'm programming it in December. So and thank you for recommending it. I always love when people tell me movies I've never heard about. It's just like discovering a whole new world. And then if we can share it through Secret Movie Club, it's dope. So as always, thank you to everybody. Secret Movie Club podcast 75. We're getting close to my lucky number is going to be about David Cronenberg and Videodrome and Eastern Promises. Interestingly, Cronenberg's views noticeably shift, although I'm really excited for Crimes of the Future, which he's shooting right now, which is a literal remake of one of his very first films. And I'm very curious if it'll be the same or if it's going to be, hey, here's where I was in my 20s and here's where I am in my 70s. I'm very excited about this one. But Videodrome deals with a cult-like sort of entity and somebody succumbing to it. Eastern Promises, which is one of my favorite latter-day Cronenbergs, deals with a cult-like entity here, the Russian Mafia in London, and somebody resisting it. So we put them together, and we're going to talk about Cronenberg and those two movies, so stay tuned. As always, these episodes are edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz, our chief creative content officer. You can find out about everything we do at secretmovieclub.com or go to Eventbrite to get tickets, and uh, you can write us a community 
at secretmovieclub.com or podcast at secretmovieclub.com. By the time you hear this, we should have announced our entire October. Uh, you can get tickets to October 2021. Everyone have a great week. I'll see you soon. Bye, Susan. Bye.